Hey Gaggle listeners, Ron here. Just a disclaimer, this episode was recorded prior to the news that John Kyle stepped down from the U.S. Senate. It is now official that Martha McSally will be his replacement. Without further ado, on to the show. Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you alongside reporters to talk Arizona politics. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, a national political reporter at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. And I'm Ron Hansen. I cover the congressional delegation. So 2018 is coming to a close, and already we're starting to talk about what you can expect next year. I know it might feel a little soon, feels that way for us too, but it's time to talk about it. The state legislature will convene in early January, and we talked with our state political reporters to try to get a sense about what to expect with that session. But first, we wanted to talk about what you can expect on Capitol Hill. Yeah, so one of the stories that we worked on before this year got uh, to an end is how Arizona comes out of the 2018 midterm elections and enters the 2019 Congress. We have uh, changed one senator so far. We might be changing another one before too long, and we've changed over a third of our nine-member House delegation since the last Congress now. So we wanted to explore what this means for our, our standing on Capitol Hill. You should take a look at that story if you haven't already. It examines Arizona's clout in the U.S. Uh, Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives. We enter 2019 with not a lot of it, according to the experts that we've talked to. And I think Ron really had a good line in the story that to really understand where we are now, you have to take a look at what we've lost. Yeah. So if you look at what John McCain represented in the Senate, for example, he was chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee with his phone calls, with a tap on the shoulder, with just uh, uh, a look. I'm sure he could make some things happen or knock down some dumb ideas and made sure they didn't happen. Um we don't have that kind of pull in the Senate now. We will have Kirsten Cinema, who is familiar with Capitol Hill and her three terms in the House, but it, she enters as a freshman in the Senate where she starts all over in, in many ways. And if John Kyle leaves, as your reporting is suggesting, is, is perhaps imminent, then we will have the two most junior senators in the Senate in the country. We spent a lot of time talking with former Senate historians who, by the way, I've just absolutely grown to love, and uh, former senators and former members of the House to try to assess how important is seniority and uh, tenure, really, especially in an era like the one we're in today where, um, you know, outsized maybe media presence like we saw with Senator the outgoing Senator Jeff Flake, or personal relationships can really be as important as seniority or tenure. And, you know, we talked with former Senator Dennis DeConcini about how he operated uh, in the Senate to get things done for Arizona. His achievements were largely built on those personal relationships and his willingness to kind of horse trade on on things. Ed Pastor, the late Ed Pastor, got a lot of money to Arizona because of his tenure and, again, his willingness to work across the aisle to bring money to Arizona. I think you did the math. Nine out of the 23 years he was there, he was in the minority party, so he would just get the California delegation to advocate for Arizona to, to bring money home to Arizona. So there's lots of ways that senators and representatives can be important and have power. 
Uh, so this piece really kind of sought to take on what cinema's power, for example, might look like. Right. And she is not a stranger to Washington, as we noted, but it is going to be a, a new climb for her. And when you look at our House delegation, all four of our House Republicans, for example, are members of the Freedom Caucus. This is a group that really now is in the minority and also really kind of uh, swears off uh, spending. They don't want to uh, bring in a whole lot of new things happening and, and really aren't all that interested in, in parochial politics. So these folks are, you know, they, they enter 2019 with a, a real weak hand in terms of the ability to bring home the bacon for Arizona, it seems. Why should people care about this, about seniority and stature? You know, mostly it's something that reporters follow and care about a lot is do we follow the, you know, the twists and turns and dramas of every, you know, particular issue. But for people here, they should care too, because when you have seniority, you can make things happen. You can steer money to your state or your district in a way that can really change the way your state or district looks. Republicans did expand their majority in the Senate, but it's still fairly evenly divided and every, you know, vote is going to matter if cinema sticks to the same style that she has cultivated over the last um, several terms back on Capitol Hill, I would expect her to continue to be a player. Uh, she will be certainly one to watch. And speaking of the Senate in 2019, uh, you are looking at possibly seeing John Kyle step aside at some point here and bringing in somebody else. How important is this and, and how important is 2019 for shaping what will be another election in 2020? Kyle's return to the Senate uh, following the death of Senator John McCain kind of kept the state's clout on par um, through the end of the year, or at least through his departure. I mean, he is widely respected back on Capitol Hill. He knows how things operate. He's able to get things done. We saw the role that he took with uh, the nomination, uh, or excuse me, the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, for example. He is a man of very great political stature. So his departure is going to be felt, even though I think it is very widely expected. Governor Ducey, under state law, will have to appoint another Republican, and it's unclear uh, what his thinking is on what that replacement might look like. Will he pick somebody who will then stand in 2020 for re-election? Will he pick somebody who, you know, might not uh, be up for running in 2020 but could serve as a caretaker of sorts until uh, that election is is held and there's perhaps an open uh, an open race, a primary for uh, the Republican field? Or is he going to really let the donors who have invested quite a bit of time and money and energy into their Republican candidates, namely into Martha McSally during the 2018 bid, is he going to let them influence his decision to a greater degree than, say, someone like uh, Doug Goodyear, a political consultant whom he keeps extraordinarily close? I think that remains to be seen. What we do know is that already candidates are lining up for the 2020 race. On the Democratic side, uh, they are talking about everyone from Representative Ruben Gallego, who represents a Western uh, Phoenix district, all the way to, you know, Grant Woods, the former Republican attorney general and a, and a very close friend of, of McCain's. And of, of course, we can't, you know, forget about Mark Kelly, who is the 
husband of uh, Gabby Giffords, former state and uh, federal lawmaker. So how much should we expect to see from Democrats in 2019 for this Senate race that won't happen until 2020 more formally? A lot. I think that they are going to continue to try to grow the infrastructure and grow the network of people and volunteers that they feel like they are going to need to work a successful ground game to ensure they have the same type of turnout uh, that we saw during the 2018 cycle. I think they're taking nothing for granted. I think there's going to be heavy investments in the state and in outside groups and in, you know, get out the vote efforts. I don't think anyone will be sitting back, relaxing and thinking that, you know, just because we saw a win by Kirsten Cinema in 2018, that they should take 2020 for granted. So it seems like a good idea to keep our eyes peeled for the Senate race that will be getting underway in 2019 and for how Arizona's delegation performs on Capitol Hill in a new Congress. Shifting gears a bit, I talked to Maria Paletta, our uh, state government reporter who tracks Governor Doug Ducey, about what she is expecting from the governor uh, in 2019. There have been a handful of clues that have come out. Um, I know education is something that's already been discussed. Obviously, there was Red for Ed this uh, earlier this year and the 20 by 2020 plan, which is ongoing. So that's been, of course, mentioned. Also, he, I, I think five or so days ago, about a week ago, announced that he was going to be in his executive budget dedicating about $30 million to water issues. That was specifically for protecting water levels in Lake Mead. That was something, one of the less sexy issues that came up during the election that nonetheless is important to everybody. So as they're negotiating those water agreements, he's he's made that a priority publicly. Also, um, his school safety plan, he said he's going to be focusing on as well, trying to get that through. Of course, last year he tried um, to work on that, but Republicans thought it was too strong and Democrats thought it was not strong enough. So we'll see how that goes this year. Another item, as I've been looking through all of the agencies and departments budget requests, most of them have been asking for raises for their employees and they're all using this identical language that says that they know that the governor's office is focused on public safety departments specifically, but that they look forward to talking to him and his staffers about this. So there's clearly been some coordination there, and it looks like there's a possibility at least for for state employees to see some raises. Okay, so you've rattled off a number of things. One thing we haven't heard is what, if anything, does he intend to do on reducing the income tax to whatever is close to zero as he can get, as candidate Ducey promised us in 2014. Yes, so that was part of his 10-point pledge that he signed and created and gave to voters before his first term. He did not make uh, much progress at all. However, he had said from the start, I will say, that that was something that was going to take him um, two terms and some better economic conditions. So now he has a second term and better economic conditions. So we'll see what happens now. Of course, we do have um, a bit of a different makeup in the legislature. So we'll see how that goes. He's under fire for Repu- uh, excuse me from Republicans right now for the $32 car registration fee that was going to be, um, it was estimated to be $18 at the legislative session, during the legislative session, and Republicans were mad about that. Now it's come out that it's going to be 32 and so um, they're even more upset. The governor has said that that's not a tax increase, that's a user fee, and those things are different. <laughs> I'm sure we can expect it, uh, him to look again at that income tax issue, tax loopholes, um, but the, the income tax one is a tough one. I don't know 
I'm not sure how much progress he'll make on that. Yeah, it seems like he's put himself in a box on this one. It's something that is clearly on his personal agenda, but especially with the results from the 2018 elections, it seems like the legislature is moving further away from anything like that. And yeah, the economy is good, but there is at least some question about how much longer that will last. So is it time to, to say that's it? It's just not going to happen? It, it might be. Um, we'll, we'll have to see what happens, but you're absolutely right. I mean, of course, we saw um, Legislative Budget Committee came out last year with these projections that suddenly had a, we had a lot more money as a state than we were going to. So the governor has been kind of relying on those projections, using those as he talks about some of these issues. But we've also seen other presentations from that same committee coming out saying we could see a bit of a recession by 2020. So um, what that's going to look like going forward, we'll have to see. Okay, don't say the R word during this podcast. It's bad luck Less for all. Less rosy economic conditions. There you Is go. That better? Okay, thanks, Maria, for the update. Thank you. Up next, I talked with Dustin Gardner, our state legislative reporter, about what to expect in 2019. Can you give us a sense of what the biggest issues for 2019's legislative session might be? Um, money is going to be everything. We're, you know, the state's projecting a big surplus. We're hearing roughly a billion dollars potentially. Um, so that's going to, you know, overshadow everything. Obviously, there's going to be um, a continued push for more education funding. Um, there's going to be a lot of discussion about roads and infrastructure, especially roads in rural communities. Um, and then beyond the budget, I think we're going to see a lot of discussion around um, criminal justice reform. I think there's an interest in both parties to address that. Uh, and then especially when it comes to marijuana, there, I think there's some interest in potentially decriminalization efforts. And there's a lot of discussion right now around a potential effort um, that, the that the legislature might consider to put a ballot initiative before uh, voters to um, potentially allow for some type of recreational marijuana. So that'll be a biggie. Um, another really huge one could be water. I think we're going to see that pretty early on. Um, the governor's office is very ad adamant that something needs to get done quickly on, on the, the drought contingency plan. Um, so it's uh, it, we're going to see, I think, overall more moderate legislature this year potentially, but they've got some pretty big priorities coming right out of the gate. Traditionally at the state capitol, there is always the split between the um, urban lawmakers and the rural lawmakers. Uh, rural lawmakers dub Maricopa County, the great state of Maricopa County, and they oftentimes feel as though their priorities are not heard. And I think you make a really good point, especially when it comes to roads and infrastructure in, in rural Arizona with the arrival of Rusty Bowers and Karen Fan, two Republicans in leadership positions from rural parts of the state. What might that mean? Yeah, I think that's that's going to mean a lot of attention to rural issues, including infrastructure and roads. Um, the state for many years um, helped pay for um, the Department of Public Safety by taking money from roads. Um, they fixed that, and so now there's going to be pressure to ma you know make up for some of um, the maintenance that's been overlooked. Um, and then beyond that, I think water is going to be a huge priority. The rural communities are especially affected by what's going on uh, with the Colorado River and with groundwater. Um, and like you said, Republicans in leadership in both chambers, they, they hail from very uh, rural areas of the state, and um, or at least they have those roots. Um, and that's kind of a shift from what we've seen recently. There's a lot of leadership in both parties, frankly, outside of Maricopa County. And so I think that means that the rural communities will have a lot more attention at the table. 
traditionally, we don't see the governor play with Democrats. Um, he, for the most part, hasn't really needed their support, uh, in, it, except for very rare instances. How might they flex their um, increased numbers, I guess, at the legislature this year? Yeah, I mean, it's a completely different chessboard at the legislature this year. The Democrats have more seats in the House than they have since 1966. Um, it's now a 31-29 split in the House. Um, in the Senate, it's still the, the tight 17-13 split. Um, and that really gives Democrats a lot of leverage to bargain with the governor, to bargain with legislative leadership. And so I think Governor Ducey, who has, like you said, not not spent much time in the past working with Democrats, he really has an incentive to do that now when it comes to some of his priorities like water, potentially tax conformity. Um, when it comes to education, he, you know, he's going to need their votes on some of these things, um, and that gives them a lot of leverage, and it gives um, potential moderates or cro crossover votes in both parties a lot more power um, to kind of be uh, d deal makers or breakers because there really is no, uh, especially in the House, that Republicans have no room for error with their margin. How do you foresee this relationship between the more conservative wing of the Republican legislature with the more moderate wing. I mean, we've kind of watched this play out over the past number of sessions, I guess. But I think it's interesting that as the legislature is kind of moderating as a whole, you have some pretty far right individuals in charge of some pretty important committees. For example, Sylvia Allen maintains um, her chairmanship of the Senate Education Board. And uh, she's known for her school choice measures uh, and vociferous views on education policy. And then you have Kelly Townsend, uh, a Republican who is known around the state capitol for some of the more interesting views on a range of topics. She's mm -hmm. a, a personality for sure. She's in charge of elections. Yeah, and that, that's one of the issues I should have mentioned earlier, too, is after this election and it's, and some of the concerns that Republicans had about emergency voting centers and um, uh, signature issues with provisional ballots in Maricopa County, that'll be another issue where, where we're going to see Republicans push some changes. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, the legislature um, as a whole... Uh, will likely be more moderate given the closer vote split, but that hasn't changed the dynamics of Republican leadership. Um, you know, you have some very hardline um, committee chairs in the Republican caucus, and then also just the leadership team in the House. You know, you've got Rusty Bowers, Warren Peterson, Becky Nutt. These are all very conservative individuals that are coming from the more conservative end of their caucus. Um, and so I think, you know, e even with the move to moderation, there is still the very much that conservative foundation in the in the Republican caucus of the legislature. And, you know, you've got John Allen leading the uh, education committee. You have Anthony Kern leading rules. Um, so as much as things change, they will stay the same in some ways with that, the kind of the more conservative culture in leadership. Well, we will be watching your coverage, uh, especially in January when the legislature kicks off. It will set the tone for what the next few months will look like down at the state capitol. And we cannot wait to read your reporting on this fight over the surplus. That will be almost as interesting as the fight over uh, what to cut. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Finally, I talked with Craig Harris, a state investigative reporter who has done some pretty phenomenal work lately about charter schools.
Craig, what are the major findings of your months-long investigations into different operators and school systems? Well, what we have found is that there are, frankly, a lot of folks who are becoming millionaires off a system that was created more than 20 years ago to give parents choice so they could find other options for their their children. And what it has become is essentially a cash cow for a handful of individuals. You know, whether you see at Primavera, which is an online school for at-risk kids where the guy's paid himself over $10 million the last two years, or there's American Leadership Academy where the founder, Glenn Way, has made uh, at least $13 million and possibly more than that on um, essentially no-bid contracts to build the schools for his charter chain. Uh, then you have Eddie Farnsworth, who's made over 13, close to $14 million by selling schools back to a nonprofit that he created. So that's what's happened. And you're referring to Eddie Farnsworth, who is a pretty influential Republican lawmaker down in the House of Representatives, and he has been a an advocate for years for the charter school system and growth. Can you give us a sense of what the response uh, to your reporting has been? Well, it's been a lot of, in a lot of respects, it's been outrage, even from the Attorney General, Mark Burnovich, who came out and was shocked at how much uh, Primavera uh, CEO Damian Kramer had paid himself. Um, a lot of parents have been upset. A lot of folks in the uh, uh, Red for Ed movement have been furious and upset too because every time someone cashes out and gets millions upon millions of dollars, that's less money that's going to children. That's less money that's going to the classrooms. And charter schools already are given an advantage on funding compared to traditional district schools. They get a $2,100 a year more in state funding than traditional district schools. And the reason for that is because charters can't go out and get local voters to approve bonds or overrides. Yeah, a lot of folks will say, hey, we'd much rather get $2,100 more in, in state funding from the state instead of having to go out and convince voters to give us more money. So I've spent a lot of time just looking at school vouchers, the school voucher style system down at the state capitol, and the pushback from Republicans and from kind of more libertarian-leaning policymakers has always been, this is the free market at work. You're giving parents choice, so what if some of these operators make a little money doing so? Like, it's a business, just like everything else. What has the response been from some of these operators to your reporting? It's been exactly the same thing. It is free market. And if we can basically shrink our cost so much that we make a profit, good for us. That's what the system was designed for. But actually, a couple of colleagues of ours at the Republic are looking at that's not the way charter schools were set up. They were never intended to create a massive windfall for operators. They were intended to provide choice so parents could do certain things. Like there are some very, very good charter schools. Basis, for example, if you want to have your kid into an AP program for advanced placement, that's a great school. Great Hearts, if you want to get a traditional, a, a very traditional education where the kids learn Latin or they learn music, that's a great choice for that. You also have schools that uh, focus on equestrian studies or music. That was the reason, is to find ways to get out of your traditional six, seven periods a day in high school, taking 45, 50-minute classes so you could find stuff for kids. They were never, never, never intended to be, let people become millionaires. So looking ahead to 2019 with the start of the legislative session in January, what kind of proposed reforms might we see introduced by the governor, his allies down there, and then response, I guess, from some of these more um, conservative school choice advocates who I would think would be trying to fight any kind of 
you know, wholesale reforms to the system. Well, you've got Kate Brophy McGee. She is a, a senator. She won by the hair of her chinny chin chin for re-election, and she is an advocate for charter school reform. She wants more transparency, more accountability, and how the money is spent. Uh, I think she's also going to look at how the boards are set up, so you can't have what's called self-dealing. You can just deal among yourselves. And, you know, there are Democrats who have long pushed for changes in how the money is being spent, more transparency that they follow public records law, open meetings laws. And just by shining the light on that and having better access, I think gets the public an idea of how the money is spent. Um, I have long argued with the folks at Basis because they don't want to say how much they're paying their founders, uh, Michael and Olga Block. And I've said, pay them what you want. Just tell us what you pay them. You know, Alabama pays Nick Saban $8 million a year to be a football coach. Just tell us what you're paying these folks. What has the response been from the governor? Well, uh, earlier this past summer, he wasn't concerned very much at all. And he also said he wasn't even concerned how much the CEOs get paid. Um, but after Attorney General Brnovich, who's also Republican, made a stink about the high pay, you have other Republicans who are moderates who have kind of raised concerns. The governor has come around and said, yeah, he's open to making some changes to charter schools to give them more transparency. Uh, having more transparency to see where the money is going and maybe reining in some of the these transactions that have allowed people to become incredibly rich. Really incredible reporting. We'll be following it throughout the year. And thanks. Thank you very much. That's it for today. And for 2018, thank you, Jesus. And thank you for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. You can find me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Thank you all for listening and subscribing. We'll be back with new episodes in January 2019. We're wishing you all very, very happy holidays from all of us here on The Gaggle in the Arizona Republic. This episode was edited and produced by Taylor Seeley, Taya Francesca Price, and Kayla White. Thanks again. We will see you next year.